0: of our gathering here this morning is that it truly is fall, even if it doesn't feel like it around here. Um, The seasons have officially changed. Did you know that, right? Back in late September, it kind of turns into fall. And kind of with that, I was thinking about the Midwest. I, I come from Kansas and lived in Chicago for 22 years, and I really do miss a Midwest fall for sure. Um, Even though this kind of feels like Midwest fall, right? Like it's pretty good so far. Um, The colors are spectacular back there. Um, It's amazing. You know, the trees are changing. And I love the fall. I love the smells. I love the cozy weather. I love the football. Um, I love the food. I was at Costco this last week, and guess what? Are back in stock. The pumpkin pies, right? Did anybody else buy a pumpkin pie? I didn't. I, I actually relented. I didn't buy one yet, uh, but I can't. You know, it's amazing. My my neighbor back in Chicago, he actually worked in the bakery, and he hated this time of year because it's just like pumpkin pie galore, right? He worked at Costco and was making them. But I like the variation of the seasons. Um, plus, there's always a great anticipation for Christmas. All right, it's just just a fun time of year. I like this time of year. I'm grateful for the different seasons. That kind of bring a variety and change to life, but today I want to talk about something that I think is a perennial problem that many of us, uh, including myself, face, and I think it's actually evidenced best in this clip, so can we go ahead and show this clip? Hey, aren't you going to wait and greet the gray pumpkin, huh? It won't be long now. If the great pumpkin comes, I'll still put in a good word for you. Good grief, I said if. I meant when he comes. I'm doomed. One little flip like that can cause the great pumpkin to pass you by. Oh, great pumpkin, where are you? There you go. Linus, right? Um, Such a great time of year we got. Halloween special, Thanksgiving special, Christmas special for, you know, the comic strip peanuts, it's so good. But has anyone ever felt like Linus talking to the great pumpkin when you're talking to or about God? What the text is going to bring up today is, is going to surface this idea of, of this question. Does anybody struggle with doubts? Does anyone among us ever feel insincere sometimes as it relates to God. All the time maybe, does anyone like me want to beat yourself up because of the doubts and the insincerity that swirls around in your heart and your mind as you think about your relationship with God? We get so caught up in the whirlwind and oftentimes wonder when these doubts or insecurities arise within us and we start to wonder, am I really saved? Do I really believe? Right? If I really believed, I wouldn't have these doubts, would I? Who knows, because I don't. If I was really following God and believed in God, then fill in the blank, and we fill in that blank with so many things, like if I really did this. It's the doubt and insecurity that we have. We can be so critical of ourselves. And maybe we're not critical of ourselves, but we get a sense of false comfort by being judgmental of other people. So we can come to a gathering like this and we can look around at our peer group and those that are gathered at FCC and we don't think that any of us are really following God. We kind of think, well, it's not just me, but it's all of us. We're all just a bunch of hypocrites. Why should any of us try to walk a narrow road? Why try? We're not really a fellowship of disciples here. We're really just a fellowship of doubters. We get so critical. Why should I exert any effort to ask God for anything clearly I'm the double-minded person unstable in all of my ways that James is talking about and by the way thanks James thanks for pointing out the obvious to me thanks for calling me out in front of everybody today right what did Linus say I'm doomed (laughs) one slip up like that will cause the great pumpkin to pass you by And we're tempted to think that God is just going to ignore us if He sees doubt in us. He'll simply just pass us by and go visit somebody else who's actually sincere in their beliefs. So here's the question. What would or should sincerity look like for Linus? And we're going to answer that later on. But a bigger question that we all must answer is this. What does sincerity in our relationship with God look like what does or should it look like to be sincere in our faith what would we expect it to look like and when we can't answer that question or if we have the wrong answer to that question or if we feel haunted because we even have the question itself we can feel doomed Linus is consumed with his doubt when one little inconsistency surfaces, one little slip-up, and he's doomed, right? Now, I admit that it's obvious that Linus is clearly confused with the roles of Santa Claus with a made-up fictitious character called the Great Pumpkin, and Peanuts as a comic strip, so we can kind of laugh at it, but when it comes to the experiencing what Linus experienced in real life, In a relationship with the very real God of the Bible, the great I Am, it's really no laughing matter. If this is how we think of God, we can feel more than doomed. We can live in the crippling fear of being damned by Him. The feeling of insecurity or insincerity can cripple you. Dealing with doubts can destroy you, and the many, many resolves you have For the God-glorifying goals in your life. The great pumpkin isn't real, but the one who is from everlasting to everlasting is. And so are our experiences with insecurity and doubt. And that's what James is going to tell us about today. Very, very practical stuff here. So let's pray. God, I pray that we would have eyes to see wonderful things in this text. God, I pray that you would communicate to us clearly from it. May we discern your voice as we deal with a very down-to-earth issue of doubt and insecurity in our relationships with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's actually a lot of ways to approach this text. I was debating on how we preach it and what we surface. I could rail on all of us here, calling us all double-minded and unstable, (laughs) But I sense something different as I was prepping this week. As I was sensing how the Holy Spirit would lead me to communicate this wonderful truth, what I was led to think is that we must believe rightly about God. It's kind of like a general statement, but we must believe rightly about God. And I think it's critical that we learn something about God from this text before we begin to apply anything. I think the reason we struggle so much with what the text surfaces today is because we've been duped into thinking wrongly about God and His availability to us as kids. I think that our eyes are naturally drawn to see the negative so much that we fail to see the brilliance and the beauty of the positive that's crystal clear in the text. If you're like me, It's really easy to quickly experience paranoia, wondering if we're the double-minded man James is talking about. But when we do that, I think we pass over something that James says about our God. And so I think that's what we need to learn or maybe relearn about God today from our text, and I think it will have a profound impact on how we relate to Him and how we approach Him. And guess what? Satan does not want us to see it. Satan does not want you to listen to this message today. Here's the thing. In our equipping hour, we've been talking about how the Word of God is like a sharpened double-edged sword. It can actually get up in your business in, in a very productive way. But when it's used wrongly, it can use to cut you up beyond recovery. That's why we need to rightly handle this Word and be workmen approved to God. We know the dangers of misapplication how the Bible can be used to brutalize people instead of bandaging them up. We know that and so does Satan. The devil, God's adversary, takes God's Word and then he twists it a little bit to his own advantage. That's what he did in the garden, right? Did God really say? That's what he did in the desert with Jesus, Right? He took what was written, added a deceptive twist to its interpretation and application, so that it would bring about a disobedience, pain, and shame. This is his mode of operation and oppression. So what do you think he's going to do with us? He knows that the word is powerful, so why not weaponize it against us? And I think that this passage of Scripture that we're going to read today is one of his favorite passages of Scripture to twist. He uses it to make us think that God doesn't want us to come to Him in our needy state. He plants a thought in our head suggesting that we'd better stay away from Him because we have doubts. You're just a bunch of hypocrites. You're messed up people. Why would you think that He wants you to come to Him? You're a double-minded person, unstable in all of your ways. And so I think that when we read this passage, verses 5-8, through there has been a concentrated effort from our enemy to introduce a subtle deception that if allowed to creep into our minds undetected and unchecked, it will fester and poison the way that we imagine what quote-unquote real faith looks like. And so what I want to do today is like shine a light right on that deception so you see it for what it is. Here is an obvious application from the very beginning of this message. Don't believe the deceiver. Rightly believe God. (laughs) This is the battle that must be fought and won. Don't let Satan... Twist this teaching of this passage that will result in you being off balance and unstable as you relate to God. Fight for right belief of who our God really is. And I want to tell you right up front, from the beginning of our study, what real faith is about. Right as we begin the study of our text, real faith is not the absence of doubts. It is knowing who to go to when we have them, and then falling into his merciful arms. And I'm going to say that again at the end of the message when we move towards application. So I want to walk through the passage and see what James wants us to know about God. So open up to James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. First of all, I want you to know that James is writing to true believers. The first four verses indicate to us that those receiving this correspondence are in the same family that James was in. He calls them brothers, not the physical family members of Jesus, but the spiritual one. So this message is applicable for true believers. This is written to true believers that are going to struggle with these things that James is going to surface, real, authentic, born-again believers, And this is what James brings up. He says true believers are short on something. And he says this, if any of you lacks wisdom. James is addressing true Christ followers and assumes that the hypothetical situation of lacking wisdom is a reality for the believers that he's writing to. And so he wants to address it. And I want to thank James for that, because it's not just hypothetical. It's actually my reality. In fact, he he could have just said, since Sean Clark lacks wisdom, and I would have been really okay with that. I think that we might be in agreement that sometimes you might find yourself in a position of lacking in wisdom on occasion. Anybody with me? Yes. We sense that this is the case for us, but let's press into what we mean by that. What is wisdom in the first place? What is biblical wisdom that James is getting at? Now, there is a very practical element of wisdom, like knowing how to do certain things, or living through life experiences, and so now I know better. But biblical wisdom, very simply put, wisdom is God's perspective on anything. Biblical wisdom... It's just God's perspective on anything. God is referred to by Paul as the only wise God in Romans. He says this, to the only wise God. There's only, one wise, there's only one source of wisdom. The only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Solomon, who we're told is the wisest man ever, wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And just in case we didn't catch it the first time, he writes later on in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So from this, what we can discern is this. If you want to be a fool, stay far away from God and reverencing His perspective. But if you want to start making headway on having more knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, try to get God's perspective on whatever you're dealing with. Job says this, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. So if we replace the word wisdom with God's perspective in our text today, I think that that verse will come to life for us in a whole new way. If any of you lack God's perspective, if any of you lack wisdom, what are you to do? Well, James just kind of gives it to us straight. What does he say? He says, let him ask God. That's that's simple. If you're lacking God's perspective, go talk to God. It's that easy. In fact, we're commanded to do this. It's an imperative verb. So it comes with a force. If you lack perspective, go! Go talk to God about that. It's so easy. That's it. That's the main idea of the passage. I would have loved if James had ended it there. Oh, that makes sense, right? I think I'll do that. I'll just go to God and talk to Him about what I need wisdom for. But I think James adds more to the passage, and he's led to do so because our enemy has come and successfully sown seeds of doubt and deceit in our minds. But it really is that simple. That's the take-home. You lack God's perspective? Talk to God about it. Going and talking to God, with God, about about whatever you're struggling with is the solution to your problem. That's the main take-home. So why does James say that here? Is what we want to wrestle with. What type of wisdom, God's perspective, might we be lacking? Well, last week we talked about how our life is filled with a variety pack of trials. So maybe our perspective on trials needs to change. Maybe we need God's perspective, a wiser perspective on the trials that we face. We talked about this last week. They happen all the time. And so, since they occur all the time, they can actually act like a springboard that can launch you in the very presence of God over and over again. It's almost as if I could talk to Him all the time because of all the trials. And you you, you, twist, you think about it that way and you're like, what a great compassionate invitation from God Almighty to come talk to Him about the daily struggles that I face. We're, we're instructed to go to God. It is because we know something true about Him, is what James says. Why are we instructed to go to God? Well, it's because we know something true about Him. Look at what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. What do we know about God? Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to Him. Listen, this can revolutionize your life. It can be revolutionary to you. It can change your perspective on God. And so I want to spend the majority of our time today listening careful to all of verse 5 before we briefly hit on verses 6, 7, and 8 because this is how we must believe rightly about God. What do we know about God? Well, He gives generously to all without reproach. This verse is loaded with comfort for anyone who struggles with doubt. And I think we all do at different points. Maybe it's all the time. So let's notice this. What does James says? He gives. He's not stingy. He's not withholding. Here's my little perspective. I'm not going to share it with you. He gives. And not only does He give, He gives generously. This Word carries both a quantitative and a qualitative aspect to it. What I mean by that is God doesn't just give us a large quantity of His perspective, which is really all of God's Word. Not only does He give us a large quantity of his wisdom but he also gives it to us willingly and out of the kindness of his heart there's a qualitative aspect to it so I want us all to imagine something I want us to imagine a restaurant that's known for its large portion sizes of food all right like that's way too much for one person to handle right you might say that their portion sizes are quote-unquote generous now you could use the word that way but you aren't utilizing the full capacity of that word because what if the waitstaff presented to you a massive amount of food but they had a scowl on their face and they seemed frustrated to give it to you? We wouldn't say that they are offering it generously because generosity is a large portion of food but it's also food that's served willingly and with a big smile on the face. Not like I want it back. It's here it is. I'm pleased to give it to you. There's a quantitative and a qualitative aspect to it. And this is how God is depicted by James. He gives. And not only does he give, he dishes out a large dish of his wisdom. And he's happy to do so because he gives generously. And not only does he give, or does he give generously, he gives generously to all. This is unmatched customer service of God is available to all who choose to eat at God's restaurant, to everybody who walks in the doors. Here's the service. I give myself, my perspective to you. And he gives generously to all without reproach. In my opinion, these are the two most beautiful words in the text. This is what just nailed me this week. Without reproach. That means that you and I can approach him without being reprimanded. There's no shame on you for coming here in your messed up state. There's no tisk, tisk as we approach him. There's no who do you think you are coming in asking for a meal. Jesus died to open up the restaurant for us, so go in. There's no reproach here. I love these words. Have you ever felt dumb or made to feel dumb because of asking a question in class or at a sports practice? A lot of times a teacher or a coach will say something like, there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? The reason they say this is because they want to make sure that those asking the question get the help that they need. So just ask the question. There's no stupid questions. This verse tells me that when I sense in my spirit that I need to go to God, He doesn't just see me coming or sense me coming into His throne room and then He starts to roll His eyes. Here comes a doubt-filled person. Got to deal with him again. It's the exact opposite. It's actually very amazing. He opens the door wide and says to us through the author of Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So it's like the Godhead greets us at the door of the restaurant. He says, Why don't you come in? With confidence. And want you to sit down and dine for a while. For an appetizer, why don't you try the mercy. It's award winning and exquisite here. For the main course, make sure you get the grace. It's a staple. You can never go wrong with it. And why don't you save some room for dessert. It's so, so very sweet. It's appropriately named help in time of need. And we take it all in. And we're amazed at this place. I can't believe this restaurant exists. And as we leave, we're met by the door. And we're told to come back anytime. It's open 24-7, 365 days a year. We're instructed to boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need. Paul tells us that we've been given the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, he says, He's given us the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. We don't even know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you see what Paul says about how weak we are? You don't even have enough wisdom to pray for the wisdom that you desperately need. So the Spirit gets involved and he helps us out. And not only does the Spirit, so does does Jesus. We're familiar with Hebrews 7.25. He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always, how often? Always lives to make intercession for them. So here's the picture. We have God the Father. We have God the Spirit. And we have God the Son who are so generous. Every member of the Trinity is actively involved in our prayer life and none of them holds us at arm's distance and rolls their eyes or reprimand us for coming to them needy. So that's verse 5. This is the main thing that we need to believe about God. And if we rightly believe this about God, it will help protect us from the misapplication of verses 6 through 8 that the devil would love to discourage us with. Because what we're going to see in verses 6 through 8 is a person who's messed up in their perspective on who God is. We all have this tendency, but the sooner that we acknowledge this, the sooner we can go back to our favorite restaurant and find the grace that we're so desperately starving for when our doubts begin to consume us. So let's look at verses 6-8 through now that we know verse 5 exists. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now look, I admit, I admit it, there's a lot of things in these verses that we could talk about, but we won't cover today. But I do want to highlight a few things for us. In verse 6, we're told how to go to God. We are commanded to go to God in verse 5, and in verse 6, we're told how to do so, and he says, we're commanded to ask in faith, with no doubting. They're both imperative verbs. They both come with a force. Verse 6 indicates that we actually have to believe that He is who He says He is in verse 5. Who is He? He's a generous, above, without reproach God. So believe that and then ask Him. So to borrow from the previous analogy, you can't eat at the restaurant if you fail to go into the restaurant. There's no to-go orders. It's dine-in only. These verses are assuming that you are hungry and that you're willing to go to the restaurant, so to speak. They are assuming that you recognize your need for wisdom and that you're actually desperate enough to go ask God for it. Your going to Him is what real faith actually looks like. Your active trust in who God says He is has opened your mouth and you started speaking to Him. So there's a lot more to say in verses 6 through 8, but just let me ask you this question. Connect with me for a moment as we close this up. Do you think that in a moment when you are struggling with doubt or unbelief, you need God's perspective? Or would it be better for you to keep at it on your own and drown in the self-made sea of despair? I think that we can all agree that in those moments when we feel like we're drowning in our doubts are the exact moments that we need to cry out to God. And those are the moments that we feel like we need to be distant from Him. That's the subtle deception that the enemy puts in. Listen, if you are unstable in all of your ways, you know what you need? You need stability. You need like a rock-like object to cling to. You need something that you can put under your feet that will be more solid than the sinking, shifting sand that you're on. You need a fortress-like breaker wall that you can get on the other side of so that you're not blown and tossed by the wind anymore. Can you think of anyone who might be capable of being that for you? God! Go to Him in that moment. Don't let your double-mindedness and the accusations from the accuser of the brethren keep you from going to that which you need to go to for the help you desperately need. Going to God and requesting from Him wisdom is precisely what God intends for us in our moments of doubt. That's when we, quote-unquote, need Him the most. So don't run from Him in your moment of doubt, run to Him. Don't take the devil's bait and eat from his plate of lies. Send that back and get that which can be true food for you as you go to God. So here it is again. Real faith. For those of you struggling with doubt or insecurity or insincerity that you feel like you have in your relationship with God, listen to this. Real faith is not the absence of doubts. Real faith is resolutely saying, I am not going to let my very real doubts stand in my way. I'm going to bring my doubts to the throne room, and instead of using them like a padlock, I'm going to use them as like a battering ram to bust open the door of the Almighty. And I'm going to stumble into His presence even with my doubts clutched tightly into my hand. But I'm going to ask Him to generously pry my tired fingers off those doubts and receive from Him the grace, the mercy, and the wisdom that I'm starving for. I need God. We see this evidence in the psalmist. Psalm 42 says, My soul Thirst for God, for the living God. When, when shall I come and appear before God? This is what we need to do. In your moments of doubt, you need to run to Him and cling to Him and refuse to let go of Him like when Jacob wrestled God. You need to come to Jesus and cling to Jesus and refuse to be removed from His presence until He speaks to our doubt-filled hearts like He spoke to the wind and the waves. Peace, be still. We need a generous, quantitative and qualitative blessing from Him so we can hold on to Him and refuse to let go because we know that apart from Him, we can do nothing. So let's bring the message full circle. What does sincerity look like for Linus? Obviously he's doomed. He he feels doomed. He feels overwhelmed. And I want to suggest that I think Linus was a little bit hard on himself. What does sincere belief in the great pumpkin look like? What should it look like? And does Linus exhibit it? Well we would expect that someone who had a sincere faith in the great pumpkin would long for his arrival. And someone who had sincere faith in the great pumpkin would be positioned in a pumpkin patch despite the ridicule that it would cost him. And speaking of cost, there would be a great sacrifice involved. No tricks or treats are handed out in the pumpkin patch on Halloween night. You would expect that someone who believes in the majesty of the great pumpkin would be willing to stake their reputation defending his reality. You would expect them to be evangelistic in their interactions. They would tell others about the good news of the great pumpkin. Now, I don't want to ruin the story for you, but for those of you that are familiar with the story, let me ask you a few questions. Where was Linus on Halloween night? Where was he? He was in the pumpkin patch. What was Linus willing to sacrifice? Tricks or treats? What happened to his reputation? He's called a blockhead. (laughs) By more than one person. Who did he evangelize? The whole group of his peers in the neighborhood. So let me ask you this question. Is Linus, Linus demonstrating sincerity in his belief in the great pumpkin? Yes. Yes. His one little slip-up meant nothing in the grand scheme of it all because even at the closing credits of the show, what's Linus doing? He's passionately defending the honor and the reality of the great pumpkin to Charlie Brown behind the brick wall. Right? So what does sincerity and real faith look like for us? Well, it looks like the Father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus for healing and said, if, listen, if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What does Jesus say to him? And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes This man runs to Jesus even with this doubt, a little bit of doubt. And what happens in verse 24? Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Here's my problem, and I'm even coming to you with my doubts, and I need help. So this man ran to Jesus and acknowledged his lack of sincerity and said, help me. This man brought not only his son to Jesus, but he brought his very real doubts as well. And because he did, heaven heard his begging and his pleading and his son was healed. But maybe the greater healing took place in the heart of the Father who was healed in that moment from his unbelief. This is real, authentic Faith-filled belief that doubts have no chance of blowing about to and fro like a wave of the sea. Faith is coming to Him as you are, asking for help and refusing to leave His presence until He blesses you with just a little bit of His perspective on whatever you're facing. And that tells me that we can go to Him incessantly. I always need Him. I always need his perspective. And he says, come. He says, hey, it's open. I give. I give generously. I give generously to all. In fact, I give generously to all without reproach. You won't be reprimanded if you come in here. Come. Come now. And find the grace that you so desperately need. And so there's a song that, that really encapsulates this very well, and I'd like us all to stand and sing, I need thee every hour, and then we'll close with a benediction. Let's sing three verses of I need thee every hour, and then we'll close our time.